Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast. On today's show, we have Harvey, Harvey Growth Properties. I don't know if that's his surname, but it should be a surname. We are talking today about investing at a distance. Now, you will know this is something that I've done 200 miles away, I think, is my furthest property, maybe a little bit less. And I built a portfolio there and I did it, you know, at a distance. I was not there all the time, although I was there pretty heavily at the start. So Harvey talks about how you can build buy, source, refurb, let, refine, do the whole process from a distance. And we talk about the technology he used, his story, how he found property, how he grew property, and how really, you know, it's taken years and years to get to a stage where he can outsource kind of almost everything that he wants to and run his business at a distance. And I think his furthest property is 250 miles away. Now, if you're looking, you know, to invest close because you want to manage it or you feel it's a better thing to do, I think you really need to consider how with the right people and the right attitude, your return on investment can double. I said to Harvey, what's the difference between you investing locally and investing far away? He goes, it's night and day. It's totally, totally different. So before you buy that, you know, really expensive property near you and get a 3% yield and, you know, be happy and it just cuts its teeth, whatever you want to call it. Have a listen to this. Look at some of the figures on my Instagram and see what you think, because anything is possible. My second book, Behind the Bricks, with 43 awesome property investors, is on Amazon. It's not going to be an audiobook. Go and get it. Harvey, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thank you very much for having me on, Tej. As I was just saying before, I feel very honoured to make it onto this fantastic podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think it's been long overdue. I think we discussed it a while back, and then I know I came on your podcast and some videos with you in Clubhouse when when that was a thing. I don't know if it's still a thing, um, but yeah, it's definitely good to connect and talk about something which I think is very possible and but is you know tricky and and is definitely difficult at the start which is remote investing because you are a remote investor and you know you find buy refurbish do all you need to do practically from your phone and practically remotely and a lot of people kind of say oh well you know is it really possible can it really be like that and so you know for everyone listening me and Harvey are really going to explore that today because I've kind of done what Harvey does but I'm nowhere near as systemized and outsourced and sort of structured as Harvey is. So I'm going to be learning things on this podcast as well. But before we get into property and all that fun stuff, what were you doing before property? And then I suppose what led you into property? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Interesting question. So I left school with literally left school with no education, didn't even do a GCSE. Uh, as a youngster, in and out of a little tiny bit of trouble. Nothing, nothing major. I wasn't like a heroin dealer or a, a pimp or anything like that. Although my first buy to let I, it, with my entrepreneurial spark, I kind of thought about that at the time because I bought right in the middle of a red light district and a heroin and crack addict area. So could have done maybe, but but yeah, got in a tiny little bit of trouble. Went around weed, smoked too much weed, and just got in and out of a bit of trouble as a, as a youngster. But had no real career. Always had kind of, I guess. It's a cool word now. An entrepreneur was sparked there, like from school, selling BMX parts because I couldn't afford a BMX. My mum was a single parent and couldn't afford the bikes all my friends had to like selling stationery. And then from 19, having a burger bar, used to do the 
go down, drive down to France and get, get the beer and, and cigarettes and drive back with yeah. that when that used to be a thing. So yeah, never really a full-on career. The only Every time I got a job, like, it used to last around three months and I used to just kind of get an itch from that and just couldn't just get into that daily like nine to five routine. I just really couldn't get on with it. Uh, but it was only like warehouse jobs and building sites, laboring. The last job I had lasted the longest, which was nine months, like actually official, kind of official job. And it was as a plasterer, well, just as his laborer. And the reason it lasts nine months is because he was just wasn't that reliable. So it wasn't as official job. If we turned up late, it wasn't, didn't matter. He often didn't turn up on a Monday because he was out drinking. So didn't have quite so much of the commitment. But yeah, never no. I've got no official career background or lasting job to sort of transfer across. But I don't know where the property come from. I've always had a bit of a desire around property. I don't know. I don't know where the seeds started, to be honest. Uh, I still can't analyze that and find that back. I think my granddad always say to me, money's in bricks and mortar, but I show my age now, I'm 43. So I used to always look at the Gazette in the middle, always be attracted to what properties were selling for, what I was rented for. So yeah, at the age of 32, I decided to take the plunge. Bloody hell, you don't look you don't look for you too. I thought I thought you were like, yeah, wow. You're doing well, mate. The moisturizer's working. Um so yeah, so that's quite like an interesting and varied kind of beginning, I suppose, doing lots of different things. And I suppose the entrepreneur thing was in you maybe really young, but you didn't realise because you know, you're not holding a job down, not liking that, I suppose is a sign that, you know, you really need to do something on your own terms and in your own way. And so you know, obviously when people start in property, there's a hundred different strategies and then each strategy has like a hundred different approaches within it. And then there's so much complexity, it seems, and there's so much kind of to start with. Like, how did you know and what did you like start with? Uh, I've done it completely the wrong way around. I, I call this like, like, like a pyramid. You should think of it as a pyramid and uh, think of building wealth for a pyramid. And property is one of them odd places where you can jump in and can start right at the top of the pyramid, which kind of is developing. So the first thing I bought was a development site. Back when I started in 2009, there wasn't the education. I wasn't even on the internet at that point. I didn't have a laptop or anything. So I was a slow burner on the terms of internet or anything like that. But was no social media, no internet. So it kind of just went off my own instinct, which wasn't the greatest thing. And I bought a development site, which I was hoping to build two three-bedroom houses on way above my skill level, way above my uh, network level, funding levels, and ultimately I lost money on that uh, because I just procrastinated on it also. So once I won it at auction, done the classical amateur thing where you go to auction first, think I need to get into property to start auctions. And to top it off, the auctioneer, they do the dummy bids where they bounce bids off the wall. So basically, <laughs> he bounced a bid off the wall with me. Like It felt like... As my bid, as it's thirty thousand pounds, as you said, thirty thousand pounds, my hand went up, and simultaneously the hammer went down. I actually sold the property about five years later in, in the same auction, and I got the same auctioneer, and he was like, "Oh, I remember selling this last time. It was a difficult lot. What we'll do is we'll bounce a few bids off the wall to get it going if we if we we're struggling with it." And that's when I first found out about this bouncing bids off the wall. I was like, "Oh, really? <laughs> that's obviously what happened to me last time." But uh, I feel if you looked at it like a pyramid, I think at the bottom. I feel not everybody, but most people should start it simple. The biggest reason for not starting in property is overwhelm, thinking too much, analysis by paralysis. So I think everybody should cut their teeth. And as I was saying, it's the only thing you can dive straight in to try and be a developer straight away or jump up them, them pegs. 
I think everybody should build up their confidence and cut their teeth on the simpler stuff. So uh, there's always an exception to that. Every time I say this, I get into a discussion with a number of, especially HMO coaches that try to coach people on HMOs or service accommodation, always get into discussion with them. I say, of course, there's always going to be an exception. People have got transferable skills. If you took, uh, for instance, uh, Andy Joshua and put him in a kickboxing ring or put him in a UFC ring, it'd probably start at a high, high level than if you put me in there or if you put Michael Phelps in there, a swimmer. But if you put Michael Phelps, if you put him in a swimming pool next to Michael Phelps, as good of an athlete he is, it'd start at the bottom, you know? And Einstein said that you can't judge a fish on its ability to climb a tree, judge it on a – otherwise, it'd go around its whole life think it's an idiot. So you've got to judge it on its ability to swim. So people have got transferable skills, but for me, most people – I think should start with the single let properties. Back then, though, there wasn't this minefield of education and options and of, of different strategies out there. It, like I struggled to find somebody to to give direction with a strategy. So I tried doing a bit of land, which was totally wrong. Then I started off with just some buy to lets. Mm. I think it's a really good point about the simplicity because a lot of people see the profits of development. They see the positive from it. Of course, that you know there are big profits to be had there are big um kind of rewards to be had but it's just a classic more money more problems and if you can't even solve a basic buy to let problem how are you going to solve 50 development problems that are coming at you at once and you've got five of them and you've got this mud and you've got you know huge finance costs and you're waiting for planning and we can go on about it right but i think starting simply whether it's buy to let whether it's rent to rent deal sourcing whatever it is it does something different, right, Harvey? It just gives you that basic level of understanding and knowledge. Absolutely. And it's like a computer game. You don't start on level 10 because you just get peed off with it because it's just too difficult. You start at level one and then you scale up a little bit, you go to level two. And exactly what you touched on there, all the bigger stuff takes big, like a misconception of so many people is, oh, look at him, he's got it running well, Ted has got it sewn up. No, the difference between people more experienced and successful at being experienced, because if you're not fulfilled in, in earning money, I feel that's, that's a failure in itself. But the people that's driving forward, being like moving forward is the ones that learn how to problem solve. And the reason you, like the reason you can do that on a bigger scale is because you build up the network, the resources, the knowledge to navigate these problems really quickly. It's not that you don't get them. It's that you can navigate them faster because you've got all them resources. And this is why I say to people, if you've got a single net properties are the most passive form apart from social housing the most passive form is family homes that's going to give you the less variability in your income like hmo service accommodation uh, all these other strategies a lot even though they're higher incomes they're a lot more up and down and you're not sure where you're at so when you've got a foundational base of single debt properties this supports you to jump up to for me then to hmos or service accommodation especially if you want to do like momentum investing if you was going to do momentum investing with service accommodation or hmos you need to then kind of be going into more developing developing stuff which can take a long time so you need that cash flow coming in while you're going through that and without a shadow of that whether you're doing i heard mark homer saying he went through three builders on this latest development uh uh, what he's doing of 100 units and the difference between Mark Homer and me doing that is he's got the resources both financially knowledge wise and network wise to navigate through going through them builders so no matter if you're doing it on a single let or you're doing it on a larger development I think a big challenge for everybody and you talk about this all the time is builders mm. just having one myself at the moment uh, so I think it's good to build up that skill and knowledge and network and income even for the banks, the bank, if you go straight to the banks and try and lend on a HMO or try and lend on a commercial conversion, they're just going to say no to you straight away. So 
yeah, it, it doesn't sound as sexy, but I think steady wins the race sometimes. Yeah, and you know, for people out there, you know, you can obviously get finance on different things, but it is harder. It is sort of jumping through more hoops. You may not fit the requirements, etc. So it is possible, but you know, I think you have to you have to look at yourself and say, well, on my tenth property refurbishment, I am a totally different person to my first, right? And on your 50th property viewing, you are a different person to your first viewing. Your eyes are seeing different things. You're looking, you're working, thinking, you know, every single thing you do that, like 1% every day, right? The kind of, you know, compound effect or slight edge, whatever you want to call it. Every single time you do something in property like that, it just adds and adds and adds to your experience. So, you know, jumping into a bigger thing, like you said, there are exceptions or, you know, we both sort of agree and accept that. But for most people, like doing, you know, a lot of people buy buy to lets and don't do a refurb. They do a traditional 25% in, boom. And they say, oh, let's do BR. And it's like, I get you've got a couple of old school buy to lets, but BR is is very different in the sense that you've got to deal with a bunch of it. And you've got all this, you know, finance and stuff to deal with. So I think, you know, it, people think because they've done X, they can do Y, but Y is a different letter to X. Um, so Harvey, you, you know, you had this land, obviously, you know, didn't work out so well. Um, you know, he was bidding off the wall up into reserve, which they do and they can do. And yeah, you'll never really know. Although you can tell sometimes if they're not so experienced. And then you said you then kind of, I suppose, took a step back sensibly and bought buy to Is that what you did? Yeah. So, well, at the same time, so I bought the piece of land. And then I went straight in and bought a buy to let. So, and this this was the kind of I didn't realise it at the time when I bought it, but this was the thing that really broke the mould for me and gave me broke that it gave me the epiphany as well. A few years later, of realising about investing local. So my first buy to let was in Southend on Sea, uh, and it was about forty minute, fifty minute drive away from where I grew up. So I was born in. Plaster off hospital, Stratford. Very proud of being born in our great city <laughs> and London. But from the age of six, I grew up in a little village, and without any education or anything like that, I just knew that. Like instinctively, I just knew that wasn't uh, a location to invest in. Uh, it the, the price was too high. No employers, no no transport links, etc. So I looked outside from from where I lived, and it was within fifty minutes away. And I bought my first flat in South South End as a buy to let. Agent told me, yep, fantastic, good rental location, be great, uh, blah, blah, and cracked on with it, bought it, thought it was going to be a less of a refurb than it was, and it was a lot more refurb. Uh, and as I was saying at the start, with my entrepreneurial sparks and my thoughts of potentially becoming a pimp and a, a, a dealer, uh, it would turn out to be right in the middle of a red light district where it wasn't like Amsterdam, like a cool one, it was heroin addicts. <laughs> crack addicts walking around uh, the middle of the night, walking past my flat, looking for their fix. And then to top it off, four doors up from where I bought was a drug rehabilitation centre. And these same ladies that would be creeping around the streets at night, well, not even creeping, walking around the streets at night, would be just queuing up in the morning for their rehabilitation. So I moved my friend into there and I think he kind of secretly liked these ladies walking around and stayed there for quite a while. So it work, didn't work too bad for me. But uh but it really broke that mould and understanding of I didn't know 50 minutes away any better than I knew four four hours away in my remote location, Stockton on Tees. But in fact, I know Stockton on Tees, I knew Stockton on Tees much better, much faster because I met a guy from the area uh, that had moved down. He had over 70 properties in the area, massive network, several businesses in the area, really credible guy, really friendly guy. And, and he was my guiding sort of torch when I first went to the area because, of course, there was areas like that up there but he guided me away, away from, from those 
And this is what I say to people, like that was a chance meet, meeting back then. But today, then meetings don't have to be chance. You can just go into Facebook groups and just say, is anybody from this area thinking of investing now? And you'll probably get 10 people that hold their hands up. So, so yeah, that was my kind of first journey into buy to lets. Wow. I mean, I think it also summarizes what a lot of agents, not all, but a lot of agents can be like, which is, you know, say what you need to say to sell it. And I suppose that's just, well, yeah, everyone's out for themselves. And so if an agent tells you it's a great area, you know, you need to do your own due diligence on it for, for people listening, because they'll say that, you know, like Harvey said, they'll say that in any part of town. You'll literally go there, next door's on fire, next door's boarded up. Oh, my, yeah, this is a great area. Yeah, great for families, you know, all this. And you're just like, is it? So, you know, always do your due diligence on deals like that. And you said the refurb cost more than expected. Was that because, you know, you were new to it and didn't factor it in or was it something else? Yeah, exactly that. And again, it goes back to keeping it simple. Like I thought, I don't know why, you always get these round figures in your head, don't you? So I had <laughs> £10,000. Refurb should be £10,000. And it was, and I didn't even track it properly back then. I'm, I'm terrible at details and numbers still to this day, but luckily I've outsourced that part of my business. But uh, yeah, I thought 10K and it probably was more like 15K. But you, and this is why I say to people, when you're new, you don't know how to estimate a refurb. And even if you get a builder in, Quite often, they don't know how to estimate them sometimes because they're just, they're just either quoting you to win the work or they just generally don't know. They just don't understand. They get halfway through and go, oh, uh, this, this is more to it than I realised. And if you, if you multiply that to a commercial conversion where the refurb was 100K, that, could, like, that extra percentage out, like 5K on top of what's the name, that could be 50K on top of 100 that could be the deal stop. That could be development finance that made me go bankrupt because I can't afford yet to exit it, you know? So, so yeah, I got it wrong. Just didn't run the numbers correctly. Didn't understand how to run the numbers correctly. And but lucky enough, it was a manageable risk and that I could manage and, and get through. I mean, yeah, I think that complexity of refurb again is something that, you know, it's hard to get right when you're starting out because if, you know, if you're doing a conversion and, I had someone on the podcast where like the architect measured the height wrong and they had two less flats than expected. Now, I mean, that's your first deal. You've lost 300k off your GDV. You potentially got to go back into planning and wait six months on your bridging or finance costs. And, you know, I can go on, but yeah. the, the complexity of one thing being wrong in a, in a buy to let or a flip, pff, you know what it's like, right? We can deal with it. it it's really, yeah. really is nothing. But, at that level, like it really starts to have an effect because you're playing with kind of bigger numbers and bigger proportions. So, you know, obviously before all this property stuff, you weren't necessarily working in like a solid job. And so how did you like afford, because I know nowadays we use investors, but how did you afford to buy that first property? So I had a little bit of savings. So I was involved with business when I first got into my first property. So I was involved with a massive company, uh, running kind of, uh, my main mate was the massive guy and he was the front of it, but I was running that bit with him. Uh, so I was involved with that. So I had some savings, uh, had a little bit of savings. And the main lump of money to came together was from an inheritance property. Uh, so yeah, there was an inheritance property that uh, my mother and myself inherited and I just financed some money from that and used that as the main startup capital. That makes sense. And you mentioned it earlier, your investment area, Stockton on Tees. That's about, what, 250 miles from you, is it? Yeah. Yep. Now, that is far. And, you know, I think you wrote an article on this, but there's this thing that people say, the one hour rule, right? You should invest an hour from home. And I, I do see the benefit of it. However, I have like a half an hour rule now. I just can't be bothered. It's just like, if it's not within half an hour, I ain't doing it. However, 
we're going to talk about how actually it really doesn't matter where it is with the right people and the right systems it can absolutely be outsourced because you have a portfolio that's 250 miles away and how often do you visit no not very often at the start it depends if you're if you want to like aggressively grow it or how like like everybody's different you know we always get asked this question and don't get me wrong always get asked this question should i remote invest and i say no first of all find out if it works close to you but if you live in london you've only got 30k no matter which direction you go within an hour or within 30 minutes you're not going to invest you know so the only stuff that works locally in london is like every strategies work in every area by the way mm-hmm. i'm not to that philosophy of find the area find a strategy works in there then adapt to that i'm very much like find out where, where your skills and levels are and your your knowledge and experiences so in london you really need to be playing with big figures and doing like either hmos or commercial conversions and i don't think everybody not and again i'll repeat that because everybody misses that part i don't think everybody should start with that if you're a builder or quantity surveyor you're being a project manager and you're jumping across to it and you've got lots of money then yeah they're the exceptions of the rule you've got transferable skills but most people if you've got 30k, no experience and no ability to raise money, then it's just a non-start. So then I say to them, look, unless the reason I went four hours away is because I met that guy. So the trade-off from for the longer drive was worth the local knowledge that I got from him and the network I got from him. And that's what I say to people, work it out. So if you don't know anybody in the area, then go geographically as close as you can to arm, because of course there's massive benefits the closer you're gonna be to it. But then there's this benefits of it. So this one in South End. Still have fallen in my side at the moment. We're just setting up as a service accommodation. I've got no real network in the area at the moment because I've only got one one property in that location. And like I've been finding myself kind of drop bits off. Like and again, it's a 40, 50 minute drive. So by the time it's like a three-hour round trip, and I'm getting sucked into doing stuff that I would 100 percent outsource if it's far away. And if it was far away, I'd have to make the time to outsource that because I've got no other choice where you spend half hour having a little ring around and you go, oh, Joe, what's jumping the car and, and it, and it kind of gets sucked into it. And yeah, so so yeah, I, I would advise people to start locally if they can, but you've got to look at your own circumstances in your level of skill, your level of finance, your level of knowledge, your level of network. And yeah, you know, that's an interesting point about getting sucked in doing it because one of my investors said to me, Ted, you're, you're doing the garden of this latest flip because, well, I enjoy it, but I was like, look, I enjoy it, so I'd do it anyway. But he goes, what if this was, you know, 300 miles away? Like, what? you wouldn't be doing the garden. I said, absolutely not. I, all this, I would just, like you said, ring around and find someone to do it. So it, it can be quite good, actually, that it's not local because if we're slightly handy or slightly skilled, you know what, it's like, well, well, we'll do it better than them. I'll just jump in. Then next thing you know, you're there seven days a week laboring, like, you know I mean? And it takes the piss. So with... One thing that I really struggled with remote investing, especially managing refurbs, was like a lack of control because you can't necessarily just hop onto site and say, hey, what are you doing? Do it right. Or you can't, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I've got to plan a trip up, got to go three hours, got to stay here, got to do this. And then you just don't really want to, you know. So for you, when you were and when you are doing refurbs, I suppose more so when you started out, how did you deal with that lack of control and lack of yeah being there managing stuff? Yeah, so when I first started out, very different from today. I am very—I'm not a detailed guy, so I'm very much here. You go have that. Just give me a call when it's done. I can let go of control so so easily. Mm. So that wasn't a big battle for me personally, but I did get bitten in the bum for doing that lots of times. So over the years, I've developed systems to get around that. Not because of me wanting to be in control a bit more, because of the pain it causes me from not having a bit of control around that. But as I started developing the systems and process around that, it's just, just video calls. If you phone people up, just say, like, what I say to builders is, 
is look if I was local like and you've got a word builders and so they've got so much leverage in their in their court at the moment so difficult to negotiate with them if you try to go a little bit demanding they just think oh look, demanding the investor there's so much work out there see you later on there's too much work there's more work without enough supply so you, you have to try and build them rapport and and get along with them along the way but i do the same methodology like the south end one i didn't go there every day although it was within a driving distance i didn't go there every day so what i'll do is i'll just say to them but you got to word it in a soft tone and say look i'm really nervous about it being so far away is it possible if i can just give you a facetime call like each day just to have a progress because i'd usually come on site every day but obviously i'm far away and again getting that structure set up from from day one so what we do with our refurbs is we've got a spreadsheet and we plot in what we want doing and what days and then we, we go to the builder with our schedule of works and what days we want doing what we want doing on what days and we had that negotiation with them not right at the beginning because as i said if you'd be too demanding say like, i've got a schedule of work i've got this pay plan i, I want to have video calls every day i want to do this i want to do that and just go oh, look he sounds like a demanding investor and he might not even pay me every day or might not even pay me on time and they'll just be gone so you just build a bit of rapport with them. What I do from the start is I plant some seeds on probably costing of where I'd like to be and is this in the realms of possibility for you because if it's not, I don't want to waste your time and my time. And then I go from that through to getting them out and getting them time committed. I always try and drag people onto my social media. So if I'm working with a builder, I will friend request them on social media because what I want them to do is to jump onto my social media and see I've got a background. I'm not just a fly-by overnight investor that's come off of a YouTube channel or a free seminar that wants to be uh, a BRR investor and has not got no money. So I hope to get them onto there, build a bit of rapport with them along the way. And then once they're committed time-wise, hopefully with a little bit of rapport built, I then start sort of saying about, no, it's far away, about it in the past. We've kind of put this schedule out. Can you meet, can you align to the schedule in this time? Is it realistic? Let's work together on this. And then I say, then I drop in, what I'm going to do is, is I'm just going to give you, instead of like landing on site, I'm going to actually just give you a, a quick video call. Let's get quick updates. And obviously, we can then align these video calls to the pay schedule of the points that we've got on our, on our system now. Most are okay with it. And the ones that don't call you back, it's, it's just a blessing in disguise because you know they're the ones that are looking to, to not deliver, whether you was there or not. And I found I had the same challenges locally as I do remotely with builders uh, apart from the fact I had to maybe go on to a digital call with them as opposed to turning up the site myself. Mm. That's interesting, you know, because I've even when you do all of that with builders, we both know they can still be dicks. And, you know, back to their normal being as, as humans. I think the video call thing is really interesting because I did that for a while and, you know, I kept, you know, yeah, cool, that's fine, you know, looks good, pay you, whatever, send me videos, send me pictures, all that stuff. But then when I got on site, I was like, what the f- is this? Because... I just found the video didn't show it in high enough quality. The pictures were specific angles, you know, plaster. It looks great in pictures, but you touch it and it's like rough as hell. And I, I really struggle with that. So for me, I, I mean, I haven't done a remote refurb in a long time, but I would get or try to, because again, it's so difficult to find them, get a project manager in who can be there, touch the walls, you know, put a damp proof meter on stuff if needs be, make sure the kitchen's level. And of course that does cost you more, but it's interesting to hear that you manage it directly because obviously you're saving, you know, a chunk. Yeah, no, sorry, I don't manage. I've got somebody on the ground for me now. So I've got a team, I've got somebody on the ground that does that part of it. That's what I advise my coaching clients to do at the start, but also advise them to get an independent person on the ground. So whether that be a letting agent, letting agents are pretty good at it because they want the work at the end of it. So whether that be a letting agent that you ask to pop in once a week, most of them will, they want want your business, or what I've coached some people to do is 
find somebody on the ground that wants to start in property. So this is a great, this is a great leverage tool because everybody says, look, I haven't got the money to campaign everybody. And Tony Robbins says this, it's not a, it's not a lack of resources, it's a lack of resourcefulness. So mm-hmm. I've got several people working in my business with me and I'm not paying them nothing, but I'm giving them an exchange of value in other areas. And what you could often give an exchange of value with a young, hungry, still sorcerer is, look, I'm in, I'm in London, I'm in the South, I've got loads of money down here, get out, do viewings, you can bid on them and document your journey in, in the confidence knowing that in the background i'm going to buy that property uh so you're not just going out because one of the hardest things especially for young sources is finding the investors first of all so if you reach out again in facebook groups say look i want to collaborate i want to work with some young sources uh what i'll do is i'll educate you as well i'll show you the stuff i've learned like people from my courses they'll show they'll give them access to resources show them how to then build out their social media profile off the back of the training they've had their self so they kind of give them a bit of mentorship and they just do the viewings on the ground for them, they project manager for them. I've seen several people strike these deals with people in the area. So yeah, 100%, you want somebody independent from the from the build team or yourself. The main reason I do video calls is just to make sure they're more on site than I am quality controlling. And photos, I, I find are no good, but video calls are not so bad because you can direct them. Say, can you have a look over there? Can you look at that? Can you go close up to there? But that is probably more just to make sure they're on site when they're saying they're on site, then it is to get the exact quality. You want an independent person on the ground popping in, depending on the size of the job. So the project we've got at the moment, she's popping in daily, the person I've got on the ground. If it's a smaller pro- project, she might pop in like twice a week, something like that. That is, that's one of the things I say to people as well. It's like value isn't money necessarily. Value is, well, if you've got a newbie who is going on site for you every other day and they are getting to see a property investment hap- development happen from shithole to being beautiful and they get to listen and deal with builders, which is experience in itself. And you're telling them, listen, when the plaster's done, you need to check this. And when the kitchen's done, you need to check this. When it comes to their investment, they have learned from someone who's done, you know, tens of deals, how to manage builders, how to check progress and how to know when plaster's correct, you know, when the self-leveling has been done correct, you know, how to use the, and that experience I don't give a shit what someone wants in money. That experience in itself is so like, it's worth so much more than here have 15 pounds an hour. Like, absolutely. You know, obviously depends on the person. Some people aren't interested, but that's that, but it's worth so much more. So, you know, when people are like starting out and looking at investing from far away, do you think that like people have to accept that because they're not on the ground they're going to react slower and they're going to miss deals and viewings and things like that? Or do you think someone far away can be just as efficient as someone local? Eventually. It'll take a bit of time. There's always trade-offs. So like the trade-off is, look, you're going to obviously lose an odd deal if you can't pop down to the agent yourself. It's going to take. It's all about your network. Your network, whether you use local or you use remote, should be built online and then the, the follow-ups off online. So it will take, it might have a little bit of a lag to build that network up initially and you're going to have a lag on some of the deals because if you can't be there to do that yourself, but then you have to work out the trade-offs of like, like uh, I was speaking to my pal a little while ago and again, we have a healthy discussion over it. I'll get on with him. He was saying, don't do remote, uh, don't do remote refurbishments because this will go wrong, that will go wrong, this will go wrong. I said, I've had every single one of them things go wrong. And you know why I'm cool with that? Because if I'd have stuck to local, I wouldn't have any refurb full stop. And every single one of them projects have still rented out in the end. I've still had an income from them. I've still had an uplifting value from them. So maybe the uplifting value, you've got to make peace with, look, it might not be as perfect as locally, but 
it's better than not starting full stop if you've only got 30k, if that makes sense. So you've got to make the trade-offs. You've got to accept there is going to be nuances and trade-offs. And it is going to take a little while to get that person on. Like you'll get a young lad that says, yeah, I'll do viewings for you and don't turn up the next week. Yeah. It's like any role or anything you're doing. You've got to be a bit patient on building building that out and, and obviously accept that sometimes you might not get a viewing quick enough and lose a deal. But again, going back to the trade-off, of invest locally then and see how far you'll get with your 30K. You just have nothing. So missing your deal, having the odd refurb, like the worktop's not being put in as good as you'd like it to be done, but still good enough to be probably rented out. It always worth the trade-offs of just not doing it full stop. Yeah. And on that topic, actually, you know, I've, same as you, but I'm sure we've had exactly the same issues all the time with everything and everyone. Um you know, I looked back at some of the refurbs and think, oh, bloody hell, incredibly stressful. This went wrong. Had to get, you know, a good builder in to fix stuff, blah, blah, blah. But then you look at the spreadsheet and you look at your bank account and you say, well, I wouldn't be getting a 50% return on money left in or 100% or I wouldn't have a free house, as we kind of like to call it, if I didn't do this. So despite the errors, I can't, like, it's impossible for, for me anyway and for other people where I live within an hour to get a deal like that plus capital appreciation, plus all other stuff. So I think as much as, um, you know, what we're talking about, which is not actually having enough money, sometimes it's a choice thing, right? Because when you looked at your local deals, Harvey, versus the North, what's the kind of difference in like return on money left in or return on investment? How different is it? Night and day, complete night and day, especially if you're going to start with single debts. The only way to make some sort of level of return locally is if you really go into sort of like super HMOs. So like taking a three bedroom property, my pals are doing it. They're taking three bedroom properties. They're buying them for like three fifty. They're spending a hundred thousand pounds, put like going into the loft, ground for extension, turn them into like seven, eight, nine bedroom uh, HMOs. But they're going way above the bricks and mortar value. They're going into commercial lending. Like it's a, it's a different field. And even their return, they leave large chunks into these still. And their return on their capital for the return on effort and, and they put it into there still don't match some of these single lets that I'm doing. And, and not today so much because the property market's quite warm. It's hard to find deals. But I've done commercials. And I'm like, wow, in the time that it took me to do that commercial, I've actually bought five single lets and invested the same sort of money into these single lets as I put into these commercial and getting very, very similar returns off of it. So, so yeah, sometimes, but yeah, it's night and day, like return, gross yields on a single let around where I live, anywhere within an hour, you're looking at anything from like three to maybe 5%. And that's gross. If you put that down to your net yields, you're looking at one, two percent net yields. So, like, and then you look on the return on capital employed. You're looking like fours and five percent on your return on capital employed. The difficult thing you have locally as well is the is the cap on the amount you can lend against them. I've got one one property, uh, like I've got a handful of properties in the south, and I've got one in the south that this won't lend me more on it because I'm a portfolio landlord. It's in my sole name, and I've owned that from a long while ago. It, obviously, I do a rent uh, multiplier on on what you can lend. The rent is a slightly low. I've got a good tenant that's been in there for a long while. I'm not up to rent, but uh, but yeah, I'm capped. I've only I can two hundred k plus property, and I've only got one hundred and six k worth of lending on it. Would I leverage it more? I'm not sure, but the ability is not there. So uh, because of the rent stress uh, multiplier, so often when you look at the amount of capital you left employed in it, or even the yields, both of them, whichever way you want to do it, gross and net capital employed, it is night and day, especially on single let properties. You really Changes when you go into the bigger stuff. But again, going back to our original conversation of, I feel you need to scale up to go to the bigger stuff for most people. 
Yeah, I think it, it definitely is a big difference. I mean, look, you know, if you've got a certain amount of cash, then flipping in the south is definitely, you know, a good strategy to build that cash and then, you know, do something with it. But Harvey, the amount of people, and I'm sure people speak to as well, where they say, oh, I've got, you know, this 40 grand, I want to invest locally because, you know, I don't know, insert bullshit generic reason here. Um, oh, I'm too scared to like go up north. And I'm, and I'm like, dude, your, your ROI is literally going to double or triple and the deal sources exist. And, you know, you know, there's ways around it. And, and one thing I always say is, okay, well, if you want it close to you, cause whatever reason you want to manage it, if there's a leaky pipe, are you getting up at 3 a.m. to go there and fix it? The answer always no. So, you know, a lot of the reasons I find that people want to invest locally and not get a good return, you know, I think they're easily sort of fixed investing the way that we've both done it and the way you've systemized to do it. So for people listening who are in that situation, you know, look at Harvey's social media, look at my social media, look at the figures and just consider for yourself, like, do you want a little bit of extra work? And for that, you get, I say a little bit, it's a lot at the start. You know, do you want a lot of extra work to get a much, much bigger return and to hopefully, I don't know about this market, but to recycle, you know, a decent chunk of your cash. So Harvey, in terms of like outsourcing, because we briefly touched on it before, what parts of your business do you outsource? As much as possible most of the time. So uh, the part I don't outsource, well, I outsource the degree of it, but social media is the part that I do. I feel this is the most powerful thing in any business is to build out your sort of profile online. Uh, this will rapidly, businesses are done with networks. People always say it's people business and and uh, people do business with people. And it's 100% correct. You, I don't like either of these sayings, your network is your net worth or it's a people business, but they're true. I can't think of any other way to describe it. So I don't, I don't outsource the actual content creation side of it, but I outsource the repurposing of that. Uh, when I speak to people, I model this off a rich dad pod dad. I call it your property IQ, and it's not your intelligence test. It's uh, the property in test, the investor quadrant. And I modeled it off a rich dad, poor dad's cash flow quadrant. So there's four different types of property investor. You've got your hands-free, you've got your part-time, you've got your solopreneur and entrepreneur investor. And you've got to find out what you are, what your why is. This is why it bugbears me when you just get coaches or people say, do this HMO or do this service accommodation. I've done it. Anybody can do it. If I can do it. It's like, no, everybody's got different skills. Everybody's got different whys. Everybody's got different time amounts and different different resources and everything's different about all of us. So we've got to find out what works for us, not not other, other people. So you just really, really got to figure at the start, I feel, before going too far in and then figure out where you want to be. So as I said, hands-free is somebody pays somebody. And I like what you said there. That's what I advise a lot of people. Start resourcing the area. You're not just paying, just paying for their for the deal, you're paying for the local knowledge, builders, area, like you could pay for a lot within that saucer to start off with and just cut your teeth and get into an area and your time from traveling there so much. So you obviously got to get the right one and qualify the correct one, but that's a hands-free. Somebody pays somebody uh, to do it for them. Uh, my friend, he's a chiropractic clinic owner and a health coach, and he's got no interest in property apart from wanting a better return on his on his capital. So he pays my company to just do it end-to-end. He don't even see him. He just wants to know the tenants are looked after. Is it a good return? That's it. And that's a perfect part of the quadrant for him. Then you get like a part-time. So I know a guy that works for Google. He likes property still. So he goes to network events. He reads books. He follows your podcast. He, he He's out there doing it a bit, but he don't want to give up his job. So he's happy to do it as a side hustle, and that's it. Then you've got a solopreneur, somebody full-time in business, but then – they are the business. So they're not really outsourced anything. They're not built a team. And then you've got the entrepreneur that builds it into a, a business that can operate with or without them. The thing is, 
I noticed so many people that kind of put out clickbait today and say, yeah, you can leverage your time in the four-hour work week. All these things can happen, but it does take time and effort to get to that entrepreneurial status where it can operate without you. And the real test of that is if you went on one of Elon Musk's missions to Mars, when you come back, is your business still buying properties? Is it still moving forward without you? So it has to be fully systemized. So I'm heading towards that. I'm not there yet. But I'm heading towards the, the entrepreneur sort of one. So I'm trying to outsource everything, uh, majority of everything. So I've got a choice to or not to. I don't want to not do anything. I just want to have the choices to be able to do it that way. But yeah, pretty, the bits I'm still doing, uh, a little tiny bit involved with the refurbishments, not majorly, definitely not the project management part of it. I pass it over, but I enjoy the design. I enjoy picking the kitchens and, and that side of it. We're doing a bit of a bigger one at the moment, which I'm a little bit more hands-on. It's a bit out of my team's uh, scope, so I'm being a little bit more hands-on with that. Uh, But, yeah, pretty much everything else is either fully outsourced or in its process, like on on its path to being outsourced. I love that. And, you know, how long has it taken you to get to this sort of position? About seven years. You can do it quicker. I read a book by uh, Felix Dennis, uh, Had to Become Rich. Fantastic oh, book. I love that book. Yeah, I've read it twice. Actually, physically read it twice. Listened to it about three times. And uh, he says, look, no matter who you are, what you do, yeah, there is leverage today. There is the internet. There is things that can speed you up. But to fully get it, people can earn money quick. But to get it, so you, the hardest thing in business is people. Whether that's builders, mm-hmm. whether that's a PA, whether that's, whether that's a solicitor, finding these right, like, this is why uh, Facebook bought WhatsApp. It's not because they don't know how to build WhatsApp. It's not because they haven't got business acumen. It's not because they haven't got finance. It's because they haven't got time, and they're buying the time it took to build out that network resources, that following, and client list. So it does, it does take time to, to build these up, these relations, these systems, these processes, these managers. So for me, seven years, I'm not, I'm not even there yet. So uh, I think if somebody's really quick, it might take them four to five years a day internet might have shaved a year off of what Felix Dennis was saying before five years and but most of the people that do it in five years are the people that's built a business previously sold it got loads of resources loads of skill loads of time and then they can transfer that across to start a new business up and they, they can kind of do that quicker but yeah uh, yeah for me seven years so far I mean it's it's kind of it's kind of what people don't want to hear you mm-hmm. know is the timeline because yeah you know people can do it quicker but it's still going to take some amount of time and it's going to take endless endless like mistakes rejection your va doing something wrong you know missing a viewing missing an offer outbidding auction you know there's so much that's like packed into you know your seven years for example to get to the point where you can be like you know yeah we're, we're pretty much you know almost there in terms of outsourcing everything i want to um and yeah if it takes someone three years take someone one year whatever there's so much like you know, they say it's not the years of your life, it's the life in your years or something. There's a lot of life in seven years of property. Like there's a lot like going on to get you to that stage. So, you know, are there any bits of technology or apps or anything like that that you think um, really help you run your business remotely that the listeners can go and download and, and use? Yeah, absolutely. The number one one would be task management software. So, I mean, I'm in York at the moment. Uh, and I'm working, we're here for 10 days. So I'm working part. I always schedule out. So for the last seven years, like seven years ago, I had a bit of a burnout and I said to myself, I'm going to have monthly breaks just to reset myself, have a digital detox. So we have regular holidays apart from COVID, obviously, but uh, we have regular holidays, either going back to Holland where my wife's from or coming abroad. 
And I still work when I'm going away, but I put my phone down at least 48 hours, if not sometimes longer. If I go away for a month, I'll have longer periods within that time. But uh, the must software for anybody, whether you're doing it remotely or locally, is task management software. So like Basecamp, Trello, Asana. There's no, I use Basecamp, but uh, I use Trello also. And I actually use one called AnyDo for my daily stuff. I use different ones for different things. But for my main team, I use Basecamp. I don't think there's one better than the others it's just the one that you get on with the most but even if you're in an office locally getting it into task management software is an absolute must whether it's remote or, or local uh, a few other ones obviously the cloud stuff, all of them all of them work remotely or locally but cloud software like your your google drives and your accountancy softwares a must but yeah task management you'd like to be pressed to pick one yeah like i use or i have used asana and i use like microsoft to do for my kind of daily stuff but they are so good especially like trello because it's so visual and you can drag things from you know pre-refurb during refurb legals this you can have one glance at it and anyone can sort of understand okay well harvey's at this stage in this property he's what's outstanding he's what's not and like you said you use one for yourself like you know having that daily whatever it is three things five things you're going to get done and ticking through them there's satisfaction in the little bing when you kind of tick it off and like it, it really helps you stay on track so um, a question I think people are going to want to know is, with your portfolio that's far away, are you self-managing the tenants or have you got agents? I've got a team that we've, we've created a letting agents, kind of a letting agents. We, like, I buy from myself and investors, um, and this definitely wasn't a like a strategic sort of plan thing that I've done. We just kind of fell into managing. Like The guy that I met in the area initially managed a few for us, and then I started scaling up. And he wasn't built to do that. Also, I wanted to do it kind of differently. And I always had the intention to get a letting agent, but we kind of just started managing it myself. Then again, hearing them shiny pennies, started going to network events and seminars and, and hearing the shiny penny of, yeah, you could set up a letting agent on the side. I thought, wow, that'd be an extra revenue stream of buying for investors and myself. And we started managing them myself. And what, like, do you know when you, and I like to analyze what I do, good and bad. And I'm self, I try to be self aware as best as I can, as best as my ego allows me to be, uh, to see what went well, what didn't go so well, and if it didn't go so well, what could I learn from that? And I definitely shouldn't have started the self management. What I should have done is found a really good letting agent. Again, you have to qualify and squalify people. You have to really go through an effort of finding the right one. Uh, but I should have found a good letting agent, but we didn't. We end up, bringing it in in house and doing it myself i was going to these seminars i was reading tons of books i was listening to loads of audios uh on youtube a lot just really addicted to self-education it was all in my head and then i was reading about systems and hiring and outsourcing i read the four-hour work week and i was like wow that's a godsend to me as i said i'm not a detailed micromanager and can do it best myself i was very much here's a laptop get on with it just don't bother me anymore and but i'd part out like maybe 10 books worth of knowledge in, in about 10 minutes to him, spin it out really fast to them, expect it to stick and then be kind of confused when it hadn't stuck at the end. And then I thought, okay, we've got to write down the processes. So I wrote down a few systems and expected us to give them to some, a staff member and it'd be followed perfectly, not realising it needed managing through. But going back to the original question, yeah, we do, we've got, a, we're fully registered as a letting agent now. Uh, but even to this day, I'm still not making money from that. He manages my properties well. I don't make money from that. We're not at enough scale to to make money from it. And when people say to me, oh, I want to start being a letting agent or I'm going to do that on the side or manage my own properties, I kind of cringe a little bit, uh, especially if they say they're going to be a letting agent. The amount of compliance and softwares and systems you need to stay competitive today is unreal. So I would advise most, not everybody, there's always an exception. People are coach as well. Some of them do take 
the management on theirself. But yeah, I wish I'd have found them, especially once I've got to maybe 10 to 15 properties. Up to about five to 10, you can kind of wing it a little bit. But when you start getting a bit of volume, then, and especially if it's remote, like the, just the check ins, the viewings, and all that sort of side of it, you either need somebody on the ground, which you can do. You can pay somebody per viewing and like on a just a per job basis as opposed to hiring them, but you need good systems to do that. But yeah, I'd just, I would outsource that. I wish I did, but I'm in well met at the moment. <laughs> You're in too deep to change it now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's an interesting one. I, I self manage and I don't know. I, I, I've only got like 12, so it's not like as intense perhaps. And so I found that I suppose the way I looked at it was why well, an agent's going to charge me about 50 to 60 quid per property times 12 months times 12. That's a lot of money. And then as I was doing it myself, I realized I'm just on my phone. If I need, you know, it's just like, Hey, yeah. Tej, you know, the boiler's stopped. Okay. What's wrong with it? Okay. Um, Craig, can you go fix it? Yeah. Okay. Bye. And then it's kind of done. But again, it's what you said right at the start, which is having the right people that you can just say, hey, you know, can you fix this? And, you know, if your portfolios are potentially a, a large size, you could even speak to like a maintenance company and get some sort of retainer contract in place if you think there's going to be those sort of problems. But I think also this is a benefit of doing BRR, right, is that we have new boilers, new electrics. Things tend to go wrong less. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I was about to say that before you said it as well, like you've done yours right from the start. When I first started BRR in sort of around sort of 2012, 2013, the banks was really aggressive. We'd just come out of the last recession and I was lending on anything. Literally the, the least I've done for a BRR once. I bought property for 50, I think it was 51,000. And I remember saying to the lady up there again, remember me saying about, I used to just pass it over and just say, yeah, get on with it. And I said, look, change the taps, change the door handles, do a little bit to it. Cause not, she's like, I can rent this out as it is. And I'm like, yeah, do a little bit. Cause I was on a product with mortgage works at the time, which was a light refurbishment mortgage where basically they give you three months to do the work. So uh, I said, yeah, do a bit though. Like, Cause I want to refinance this. And she said, yeah, yeah. And then I phoned her up. She tenant moved in. I said, what did you do? Like, she's like, ah, oh, I didn't do anything. But she said, I moved the tenant in anyway. We literally spent 600 pound on the property. I was like, Oh, I wonder how this is going to work with a bank. Uh, bank turned up and went yeah worth seventy thousand pound here you go is your money back i was like oh wow really like and we've done i've done a load like that i've literally done them back to back like that but the problem was yeah end up having loads of issues with maintenance uh loads of issues with like the style tenants we attracted so i've got a big handful of properties that at the start that because the banks were lending that way i was more fixated on that than thinking about the longer term of the tenants the maintenance and that side of it so as these are going empty at the moment, I'm just upgrading them and getting them to where they should have been and what I should have done at the front end. So it's not really costing me more. I've just done it on a, on a delay and theoretically out the income I've had from it as opposed to out my pocket. But, uh, but yeah, 100%, if you're doing right from the start, it is a lot less problems because you get good tenants, you attract good tenants, and, yeah, the work's done in the property to have less maintenance. One thing I would advise you to use, though, if you self-manage, is uh, either maybe 1090, which is a, a like a... Uh, uh, CRM system for managing properties and it's got a little part in there uh, uh, for maintenance or uh, fixed flow it will really take it off you from taking calls and yeah managing managing it on the back end interesting I like that I'm going to have a look at those then um, and for everyone listening if you're self-managing go have a look at those so Avi, as we come to the close of the podcast what has been the biggest challenge for you in remote investing uh 
for me, biggest challenge, biggest challenge for me probably is the fact that I can let go of things too easy. Uh, <laughs> that's probably my biggest challenge in life. I'm not detailed. I'm very much head in the clouds, got an idea. Once the idea is seeded, I'm off to doing something else. That's probably my biggest challenge, but that's the same challenge as I get locally, you know? Uh, so it, I, I find the challenge is no different, absolutely zero difference really locally to remotely. I find for other people, if this, if this helps other people, is I find it's the mindset that really stops people. Uh, as you like touched on earlier on, most things you'll do locally, you'll do the same remotely. You don't walk onto building sites looking for builders. You go online. You don't like go into agents anymore unless you want to build a bit of rapport. You, you go online on right move. So I think it's the mindset shift that is the biggest challenge for most people. There is challenges with that, shadow of that, but I think that's probably the biggest one for most. For me, is, is not being detailed enough. <laughs> I like that. And if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive, uh, who would it be and what would you eat? Oh, wow. Uh, three people alive. Uh, or dead. Or you can bring them back. I'll bring them back. Uh, let's, let's go with the first one. Uh, I'd have to sit down with Dr. Joe Dispenser. Uh, mm. I've really got, I really, I feel the key to our success is our minds. And again, going back to that whole pyramid and not starting too deep, there's a guy called BJ Fogg that says incremental habits built up over time is what gets you forward, not taking on too large a chunk. But uh, yeah, Joe Dispenser, uh, who else is alive? I'd love to sit with Elon Musk. Uh, just, mm. Yeah, he's just unbelievable. At least is his vision and what he's doing. Third person, let's try and think of a third person. Uh, this will change daily, though. I could I could probably sit here ten times and think of three three each time. Uh, I'll be in admiration of. Let's try and think of a UK based guy. Probably like to sit down down and have a meal with Daniel Priestley. I think he's, he's mm. a guy that I admire admire uh, in the UK and locally. Uh, no, Russell Brunson. I'm switching that. Sorry, I just, I just, just can't remember Russell Brunson. So they're the, they're the three. What do I have to eat? Uh, I have to eat. Probably, I love chicken. I love sort of healthier food naturally. So yeah, maybe maybe somewhere where we could have some like some real cooked chicken and and some vegetables or something like that. I like it. a healthy meal with healthy minds. Yeah, um, Harvey, where can I put? Obviously, you put your show notes and your links and social media and everything in the show notes. But if people want to get a hold of you, talk about distance investing, coaching, mentoring. You know, you're buying deals for them, lettings, all sorts of stuff. Where's the best place they can go? Probably Instagram or Facebook Messenger is the best place. I'm Harvey Growth Properties across everywhere. I'm spending quite a bit of time on TikTok at the moment, which seems to be quite Are rewarding you as well. On TikTok? I, I saw him recently. I was like, okay, Harvey's secretly taken over. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I got my first half a million viral, like half a million organic view the other day. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting space. But Were you dancing in the bikini? What was the vibe? <laughs> yeah. no funny enough that's exactly exactly your initial thoughts is it when you think to tiktok yeah. so many people are uh are migrating across the tiktok at the moment yeah and i think it's because of the in content so short it's, it's difficult for me as you can tell already from this podcast i rub it on and i go down on tangents so it's been very it's been probably helpful for me to try and be a bit more concise but i think people like consuming a short sharp burst of, of 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 content and there's there's a lot more older people starting to get on there uh, and i've done the odd sort of tiktok trending style video if you want to see me make a fool of myself <laughs> where, I'm, where i'm lip syncing i've adapted it into into property and a meaning behind it and kind of making a bit of a joke behind it which is which is quite enjoyable and interesting but yeah if you want to message me though instagram or facebook messenger is probably the best place and harvey growth properties across all the platforms youtube 
all of them really yeah amazing i think yeah tiktok people's society's attention span is getting shorter and shorter and shorter so mm-hmm. yeah tiktok absolutely wins uh in that sense so harvey thank you so much for coming on the Ted talks podcast yeah thank you for having me ted you said a massive admirer of you and and the podcast what you've done in such a short time keep putting out that inspiration for everybody and yeah thank you very much for having me on if you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.